All right, church fam, go ahead and find your seats. Go ahead and find your seats. We are going to get rolling this morning. You'll, uh, you'll have to excuse my voice. It's probably going to sound like this for the next uh, six to eight weeks. Soccer season started. Uh, I coach soccer um, at a, uh, a school here in Louisville, uh, Francis Parker. And so uh, soccer season started, so I don't have a voice and probably won't have a voice sometime until the middle of October. Uh, I don't know if that's a reflection of how good or bad my team is. Um, but preseason, I had to do a lot of yelling. Uh, hey, this morning, we are going to dive right in. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be unpacking something we have at Adventure called our values and priorities. At Adventure, we call them our high five because there are five of them, right? It would be ironic if we called them our high five and there were six, but there's five of them. And so what I want to do before we really dive in this morning, and, and if, you, if you're new to Adventure, here's the way that we take notes. Some of us, were really good journalers. Some of us, we can keep up with. I talk about a million miles an hour. And if you can keep up with me, that's awesome. Um, but the easiest way to do that is just kind of get your phones at the ready so you can take pictures of the screen. That's a great way to take notes. So I want to define a couple of things this morning so we can really kind of wrap our heads and hearts around why this is so critical. Why our values and priorities, our high five here at Adventure, why those things matter, not only for us as a church, but also for us as individuals, as people, right? So let me just define a couple of things, right? So our values are the things, our values are the principles and, and of life and the ways of living that we put the highest price tag on. So when you're trying to think through, like, what are my values? Our values are the kinds of things that say it's worth it to live this way, right? Our values kind of answer the why questions in our lives, like why do our lives, like why do we live the way we do? Why do our lives operate the way that they do? And again, our values would say it's worth it to live this way, like whether that's a healthy diet, right? It's worth it, right, to eat healthy, right? It's worth it uh, for some of us, maybe it's sobriety, right? It's worth it for us to pursue sobriety. Maybe for, for some of us, right, we all would say this, it's worth it to have faith in Jesus. It's worth it to live the with God life that Jesus provides for us, right? It makes possible for us. So those are kind of how we would define our values. Now, our priorities, that's how we organize our lives in order of importance, right? Because if everything was equal importance, was of equal importance in our lives, we would all go crazy. We'd all lose our minds. We'd all go nuts, right? So priorities are how we organize our lives in terms of order of importance. And what priorities do is they tell us who or what gets our time, effort, energy, attention, presence, and finances, and also how much, right? Because that's kind of how it works. It's like if, if something's important to me, I'm going to give more time, energy, effort, presence, all that kind of stuff, and maybe even financially, I'm going to give more to that. So if, if our, our values are kind of the why when it comes to our lives, then the priorities are kind of like the how and the what, right? So my values are why I live the way that I live. My, my priorities kind of determine how I live, and what my life looks like, right? How we live to accomplish the wise and, and those kinds of things. There's, there's this old quote, right? If you're wondering kind of how these values and priorities play out in our lives, there's this old quote that says this, your life is perfectly set up to get the results you're currently getting. So like think about your life, right? Kind of take a quick inventory of your life in this moment. Your life is perfectly set up to get the results that you're currently getting. Some of us, maybe right now, we're exhausted, we're tired, we're stressed, we're frustrated, right? Maybe we're, our tempers are a little short at home, maybe our attitude's a little sour, right? And again, we think about, like, my life is set up perfectly to get the results that I'm currently giving. So, so i got to kind of take a look at the way my life is set up. And here's what this means when it comes to our values and priorities. What you're experiencing in your life right now is the result of kind of how you've set up, or let me just say this, 
how you've allowed your values and priorities to be kind of set up and determined. So some of the times it's, it's, it's not us necessarily actively doing this. Sometimes we allow life to kind of define and shape things for us. We allow our lives to tell us what's most important and what's worth it to live this way, right? So, so again, this is kind of what it looks like. Sometimes our values and priorities, they, they're the things that ultimately set up our lives. And what we're experiencing right now is a result of those values and priorities. Proverbs 25, 28 says this, a man without self-control is a city broken into, a city without walls, a city broken into and left without walls. And that's going to make sense here in just a minute. But when it comes to this, when it comes to like our values and our priorities, it's kind of like the wall that protects a city. So what we can say is this, a person without values and priorities is not safe. If there's nothing in their lives to kind of guide or aim them or direct who they are or what they do, they're like a city without walls, right? Proverbs would tell us they're like a city without walls. They're always open to and vulnerable to whoever or whatever wants to kind of get at their heart and their mind and their life. And when we connect ourselves to people that don't have values or priorities, or maybe they've got misaligned values and priorities, we step into a dangerous environment because whatever they're willing to let get at them, they'll also let get at you. That's just the truth. And the same thing can apply to a church. A church without values and priorities isn't safe. And some of us, we know that. Some of us, we've experienced that. And there's, church hurt is a unique kind of hurt, right? Because a lot of times when, when we experience church hurt in our lives, someone has put words in the mouth of God that he would never say, right? We're led to believe that God feels about us one way or another when, when really and truly that's, that's not the, the truth. But a church without values and priorities isn't safe because it'll be in a never-ending cycle of mission drift, right? The churches will chase, you know, every, every ministry fad that's kind of hot in the moment will sacrifice things like depth, for entertainment value. And when you walk in the door of a church, you'll never know what to expect. Why? Because it's always changing. So we get it, right? I, I want to make sure we understand that our values and priorities, when it comes to us as a church and when it comes to us as people, they're important. But, but here's what I wanted to do this year. I wanted to take a, kind of a fresh approach to how we dig into and unpack these values. I, I don't just want to stand up here and present them to you. Right, like some, some kind of corporate presentation about here are the things that we're going to value as a church and here are the things that we're going to prioritize and, and why don't you come along with us, right? I don't want to do that. What we're going to do is we're going to do the work. Right? We're going to do the work of, of activating these values in our lives. And I'll be honest with you, it's real work. And it's not always easy. Here's the truth, right? This can't be something that's just informative, Every Sunday for the next few weeks, for the next month, it's not going to be like some infomercial where you come in and you walk out and you go, well, now I know a lot more about adventure, right? That's not what it's going to be. It can't just be in informative because when it comes to the with God life, our values and priorities, they're designed to be transformative. It's not just information, it's transformation. When, when the what's worth it in life and the what's most important in life are rooted in the truth of Scripture and in the ways and model of Jesus, our lives will look different. If you begin to, to track and follow, if you begin to apply the truth of Scripture to your life, if you begin to live your life the way that Jesus lived his life, things are going to change. It's going to look different. But it takes work. And it's not always easy. And sometimes when we kind of value the things of Jesus, when we begin to make the things of Jesus priorities, it pushes back against the current of culture. Culture, sometimes the, the, the values and priorities of culture and the values and priorities of Jesus, sometimes they butt heads with one another. 
And so this year what we're going to do, every year we do a values and priority series in August. This year what we're going to do to make it a little different is we're going to read through the story of a guy named Nehemiah. And what I'm hoping and what I'm praying that we can do together over the next few weeks is, is kind of through his story, look at what happens when, when values and priorities aren't just talked about, but they're activated. Like what does it look like? What does it look like when someone just like us starts to do the work? Starts to do the work of allowing their values and priorities to shift and change and then allow them to be activated in their lives. What does that look like when they live out different values and different priorities? What impact can one person, a few people, a group of people, what kind of impact does that have? What kind of impact do values and priorities have when it comes to communities, people, and families? And last week was a perfect example of this. See, instead of meeting here at Adventure last Sunday... And talking about this, we have one of our high five, one of our values and priorities says this. It says we bring hope to everyone. And that value is all about relational evangelism, right? This thing we say, it is, it is one of the most important things and it is one of the things that's worth it to live this way, to bring hope to people, right? Because we live in a world where, where hope, honestly, can sometimes be hard to come by. Let's just be real, right? It is. So it's, it's important for us, and it's worth it for us to, to bring hope to everyone. And what this gospel is all about, like it says there, is relational evangelism. And that's a really churchy word that means this, right? We believe that the gospel is best shared through intentional relationships. Basically, it's this. People have to know that you care before they care about what you know. And so instead of sitting in here and talking about showing people that we care, instead of sitting in here and talking about bringing hope to everyone, what we did was we actually went out and did the work. We showed up at 10 a.m. at Tully Elementary School, and you can see, you can see the result if you were there, what happens when, when people are, are willing to do more than just talk about and listen to values and priorities. What happens when we put those things into action? Tully Elementary School looked different when we walked away than it did when we showed up. And here's the truth. That can result in opportunities to share about Jesus. People can talk, people will ask us questions like, hey, what... Why, why, does your, why does your church take a Sunday off, right, and meet at a parking lot of a school and pull weeds and, and mow grass and power wash and, and all that? Why would you do that? Well, because we want that school to, to look good for kids that showed up for one day, right? <laughs> we want it to look great. We want it to be a place when kids show up that they feel like, man, my school cares about me. My school feels safe. My school looks good. This seems like a good place to go. We want families when they're, they're dropping their kids off at, at the, the, the car rider line that they're not having to drop their kids off in a, in a jungle full of weeds and vines and poison ivy. So we, we took care of it because that's what it means to bring hope to people. Sometimes hope looks like a clean playground, and that gives us opportunities to talk about Jesus. Why would you do that? Well, because that's what Jesus would do, Right? That's the way Jesus would act upon his care and his compassion for, for a community. That's why we do that. Can I, let me tell you a little bit more about what I believe, right? People have to know that you care before they care about what you know, plain and simple. And so last week was really kind of week one of this series, right? You just didn't know it, right? We showed up and we did some work. We did the work. We didn't just talk about it. We did it. So today we're going to do this kind of same kind of thing. We're, we're going to talk about our next value and priority that says this, we're better together. We believe that. We believe that, that God never intended for us to do life alone. That when God created people, when he created mankind, he designed us and he created us to partner together. And this is all about authentic community. Like Morgan said, adventure, our why statement, like why we do church is we believe people, when it comes to church, 
should be able to come as they are. Meaning, when you walk in the doors of a church, you shouldn't have to put yourself together before you walk into a place like this. Whatever you're dealing with, the stress, the worry, the anxiety, whatever it is, the pain, the loss, the frustration, you should be able to bring that in here. Why? Jesus didn't run from stuff like that. So we don't want to run from anything like that either. But here's the cool thing, right? We say this a lot at Adventure, it's okay to be not okay. Right, But it's also not okay to stay not okay, which is one of the things I love about Jesus, is Jesus allows us to come as we are, and he meets us in that place, but he never leaves us there. So we say we come as we are, but also we allow God to, to shape us and mold us so that we become all that he desires us to be. Right, So that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about this value of we're better together. We can come as we are and become all that God desires us to be because that's how he created us. Let me pray for us. We're going to dive in. Jesus, you're good, and we love you. And this morning, Jesus, my prayer for the last couple of weeks has just been this. My prayer is that revival would break out in this city and that this would be one of many sources of that. That the churches in this community and in this city, we would put differences aside. We wouldn't just chase entertainment But, Lord, we would chase after you, and we would model our lives after you, and we would challenge people unapologetically to make your life look like Jesus, to allow Jesus to shape and mold you, to allow the Holy Spirit to renovate, restore, and redeem your life. Why? So that revival can break out in this city, so that people can experience the love that you desire for them, that people can experience what you want from them, they can experience the with God life, the abundant life, Jesus, that you make possible. So that's my prayer. My prayer over the next few weeks is that, Lord, revival would begin to break out, but it would start in each one of us. That it would break out in our hearts individually, that we would begin to see things differently, that we would begin to to feel things differently, that your word would, would come alive in new ways. Jesus, we just ask for revival. We ask for revival personally, because a lot of us, Jesus, we are tired, and sometimes it just feels like we're the walking dead, so would you resurrect our lives? Because you can do that. We ask for revival, Lord. We ask for revival in this church, that this would be a place that's just filled with the sounds and songs of worship and praise and prayer and, and petition. Lord, that this would be a place, again, where we see the Holy Spirit move like it did thousands of years ago. That's what we want, Jesus. And we ask all that in your name. Everybody said, amen. A couple, a couple Christmases ago um, in our family, uh, Santa and his elves didn't communicate really well. Um, and, and they ended up bringing buckets and buckets and buckets of Legos, right? So it's like they got on, they didn't get on the same page. Like Santa brought some, but then the elves also were like, well, you need these too, right? So it was the, it was the, the Christmas of Legos in, in our house. And, and in the excitement of all of these Legos to get into and things to build, like bags got opened, boxes got torn up, right? Pieces got kind of thrown around all over. Like if you stepped back and looked at my living room and my kitchen, you would have thought the Lego movie threw up in my house right? It was everywhere, right? But here's what happened. There was one, there was one kind of prize Lego set, and it was a, it was a Star Wars Lego set, of course, um, because we have taste. Um, it, was, uh, it was Kylo Ren's ship from um, the, the new, the, the, the sequel trilogy, right? Um, and this thing was super fancy, like the wings folded out, had all these moves. Like when I had Legos, it was like you could build an igloo, right? When we were kids, that was it. It was like, what can these do? A cube. Like now they've got moving parts and like missiles that fire and all this kind of stuff. So this thing was like the prize piece. It was 1,150 pieces. And all of those pieces got opened up and thrown on the floor. And the instruction booklet somehow got tossed in a trash bag and taken outside. 
So we didn't have the box to go off of. We had no instructions, right? And, and so here's the thing. 1,150 pieces are supposed to make this thing, but that doesn't even remotely, like all these, like, all of these pieces, like they're just scattered. It's hard to make sense of where to start. And, and here's the, if you spent a whole, if you've ever spent much time Legoing, you know every single piece is important. I don't know why, but they don't really include spares. So like when you finish and it's over and you've got like 10 pieces, it's like, uh-oh, Right? I hope these are important, right? So, like, all these pieces, all 1,150 pieces of this thing were important. They're meant to hold this spaceship together. If I don't have those pieces, then the spaceship's going to fall apart in space and everybody's going to die, right? So we need to make sure we have all the pieces. Now, thankfully, the people at Lego accounted for excitement, right, and instruction booklets getting lost, and they put the instructions online. So we could look up the, the thing, and we found it, and we found the instructions online. But here's the deal. The work still had to be done. We had to put the whole thing together, which means we had to find all the pieces, right? We had to put the whole thing together, and so brick by brick, piece by piece, this kind of pile of chaos slowly but surely turned into a spaceship from Star Wars. And after all of that, about two weeks later, one of our boys is kind of pretending to fly this spaceship around the house. And I'm not sure how it happened, but one minute it was whole, and the next minute it was back into 1,150 individual pieces, right? And I don't know who was more upset about it, me or them. I'm like, no! Like, Dad really liked that spaceship, right? I'm like, no, I just spent all day putting it together. Santa one day is going to figure out, like, he needs to have a service that just builds Legos for you. That would be nice. Um, someone just send him an email, right? So now, you and I know this, right? You know this, that, that we're not talking about building toys. We're not talking about putting Legos together. We're talking about people, right? It's just kind of a metaphor. It's a parable, there's a lot of us in this place today, and I'll tell you, I'm one of them, that at some point, it feels like or it felt like all of the pieces of our lives got scattered all over the place. And there were no instructions when it came to putting it back together, right? Maybe somebody close to us that promised that they would never do what they ended up doing, they did it. And now that relationship is over. Despite the fact that they promised that they would never do that, they did, and now that relationship's over. Or maybe for some of us, we got an email letting us know that we've been laid off, and now the paycheck and the position at work that we thought was always going to provide for us is gone. Like the plan for our lives that, that, that we decided on years and years and years ago, this is what we were going to pursue, this is what we were going to do, this is what life is going to look like. Like we had all of our, all these landmarks kind of picked out for our lives. This is where I hope to be when I'm 30, when I'm 40, when I'm 50. I want to be retired at this point, right? Those kinds of things, like all of that, that plan that we put together that seemed foolproof, like it was all going to work out. We thought it through, we counted on it. It was going to get us where we wanted to go in life. It hasn't remotely played out like we thought. We're nowhere near or nowhere close to where we envisioned ourselves at this point in our lives. And odds are we didn't just wake up and say one day, man, I hope today is the day that my life gets shattered and scattered into a thousand pieces. Like we didn't wake up and say that. I don't think anybody sits down with their calendar and says, you know what, I think next Thursday would seem like a really good day to make some bad decisions, get fired, completely ruin my career, tank my finances, end my marriage, and blow up my family. Thursday, I can pencil that in. That's not how we work. The reality is this. There have been times in our lives when things have, have ended up in pieces. And there will be times in our lives when things end up in pieces. And for most of us, it's not our fault. There are some times when it's totally our fault. But most of the time, it's not our fault. Life just happens. 
But, but regardless, right, when we find ourselves looking at the, the pieces of our lives that have been shattered and scattered all over the place, whether it's all f- our fault or not, we have to take some responsibility of figuring out how to put it all back together. Because let's be real, they, they didn't have a how to put your life back together after a divorce class in college. That wasn't a class. There wasn't a class on, on what to do in the event of layoffs, a global pandemic in the midst of inflation where life is just too expensive. There wasn't a class for that. If there was a class for that, we would have signed up, right? We would have gone back and learned. We would have, got, we would have watched the YouTube video, read the cliff notes, figured it all out. So, so whether it's politics or whether it's culture wars or bus schedules, I'm telling you, there's only one organization that JCPS needs to hire to fix all this, Chick-fil-A. If they hire Chick-fil-A, it's, it'll, be, it'll be back. Like, your kids will, get, will, will arrive at your house early and to school early. It'll be perfect, right? Hire Chick-fil-A, bring them in, right? So maybe it's bus schedules through chaos into our week, right? You thought, man, my, my kids are going back to school, or maybe some of us were teachers in the room. I'm back in my classroom. Wrong. And now chaos ensues, right? So your life's in pieces. Maybe it's juggling work schedules. Maybe it's family conflict. Maybe it's trying to maintain friendships and relationships when your schedule gets too crazy. Or maybe for some of us, it's bills that keep going up instead of going down. And really and truly, all of us right now, it's just we all have to deal with kind of the overall overarching tension and outrage that exists in our world today. It seems like we're just one second away from our lives ending up in pieces. So grab your Bibles, open up to Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah is going to be about halfway through your Bible, right? So about halfway through your Bible in the Old Testament. Uh, Nehemiah chapter, not quite halfway, like 40%. We'll call it that, okay? Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. It says this, Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, great names. Uh, this, these are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of, of Chislev, which is November. The 20th year, which is King Artaxerxes' 20th year as king, right? So I'm just explaining some of this stuff as we go along. He says, I was in Susa, which is the king's winter palace, right? So, so Nehemiah is saying, listen, like, all of this that's about to go down happened in November in the 20th year of, of King Artaxerxes, his rule over the empire. And here's where I was. I was in the king's winter palace. Why? Because it's November, when one of my brothers came with certain, he came with men from Judah, right? And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me that there's a remnant there in the province who had survived exile, but they're in great trouble and they're in great shame. Why? Because the walls of Jerusalem have been broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. And you're like, what in the world is going on, right? We just kind of airdrop into this kind of major conflict, we airdrop into this, this major tension. So let me, let me just catch everybody up. Here's a few hundred years of Bible history in just a couple of minutes. So long before this moment, right, in Nehemiah that we just read, King Solomon's son, a guy named Rehoboam, split the kingdom of Israel in half. The, the northern half of the kingdom was called Israel. The southern half of the kingdom they called Judah. About 200 years later, a group of people called the Assyrians showed up and they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. And what they did was they then exported and deported all of the young, smart, healthy, and strong Israelites to be their slaves and servants all over the Assyrian Empire, which is basically the known world at that point, right? So just again, kind of think Lego pieces for those of us who have built Legos before. Instead of it being a, a spaceship, this is a northern part of a kingdom, 
that has been scattered and shattered into thousands of pieces all over the known world. So about 130 years after this, the Babylonians, they conquer the Assyrians, and they take over their empire, which again is pretty much the known world at this point, and then they go and they finish the job, right? So the Assyrians just conquered the northern kingdom. The Babylonians go in and conquer the southern kingdom of Judah, right? And they do the same thing. They destroy the city of Jerusalem. They tear down the temple. If you want to go and like read more about this, like just that part is covered in the book of Isaiah, right? Isaiah's talking about, hey, there's a day coming where our temple's going to get destroyed. And same deal. After this happens, after the, the Babylonians conquer Judah, they export and deport all the young, strong, healthy, and smart Israelites, right, to be their slaves and servants throughout their empire. This is the first four chapters of the book of Daniel. If you want to know kind of where this happens or kind of a first-person take on what it's life to, like to be taken captive and exiled, read the first four chapters of the book of Daniel. And again, think Legos. Scattered and shattered all over the universe or all over the, 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 the world. But the Persians then, if it wasn't complicated enough, the Persians then, and they, they come in and they conquer the Babylonians. And they take over the Babylonians' empire, which is pretty much the known world. Again, if you want to know where this is, it's Daniel chapter 5. And so now we got a third empire, right? A third empire uh, ruling over the Israelites who have been scattered and shattered all over the known world. And we say this a lot here at Adventure, that Bible people are just people. A lot of times we assume that the reason that the people are in the Bible is because they're special, they're different than us, and, and sure, things happen to them, but they can never happen to us because we're not Bible people. Bible people are just people. So I think the Israelites at this point in time, they would get it. If we sat down with someone from this time period and we shared about our own lives, we shared about the chaos and stress and anxiety and frustration that we feel from being scattered and shattered or being a second away from being scattered and shattered, they go, yeah, we get it. We know what that feels like. So where Nehemiah picks up is about 70 years after the Persians had taken over. That's where we find ourselves in Nehemiah chapter 1. Nehemiah had been born in captivity. Nehemiah never knew what it was like to grow up in, in his home country, in his home culture. He didn't know. Nehemiah never knew a life outside of being a slave and a servant to the Persian Empire. And like we read, some men from Judah, the southern part of the kingdom that, they, that had been conquered, they came to him in Susa. They left Judah, came to him in Susa, and he asks about Jerusalem. He asks them a question. Tell me about Jerusalem. It had been decimated a while ago. And Nehemiah asks two questions, now that we're caught up, right, 200 years in just a couple of minutes. Nehemiah asks two questions. The first question is about the people, and the second question is about the place. We'll circle back to that here in just a second, but here's what Nehemiah says. He says, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped and survived exile, concerning Jerusalem. And they tell him this, that the remnant, right, the leftover people there in that province who survived the exile, and when I say leftover people, it was this, right, when these, different na when these different nations conquered people, they would, would kind of take the best of the best. They would take the ones that they wanted, and then we'd kind of leave the weak and the sick and all that. Like, they would, they would leave them behind defenseless. Because at that point, it's like, we're going to take the strong ones. We're going to leave the weak ones with no defense. Because, really, you'll just get picked off anyway. So we'll just kind of let that take its course. We'll let other people kind of pick you off and kill you because you're weak and you're sick and you can't defend yourself. We'll take all the good, strong, smart people with us. So the remnant, they say, is this leftover group of people, the sick, the hurting, the poor, 
So they survived the exile, but they're in great trouble. That word great trouble or that phrase great trouble in Hebrew means this, overwhelming misery. I mean, that means every moment, every waking moment is just miserable. Every waking moment, you're insecure. Every waking moment, you're afraid. Every waking moment, you're hungry. Every waking moment, you're hurting. Overwhelming misery. They're in overwhelming misery and shame, which means this. They're being taunted, bullied, and taken advantage of. Why? Because the wall of Jerusalem has been broken down and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So here's what we learn. This group of survivors and leftovers and refugees, they were living in misery because they had no way to defend themselves. The wall and the gates had been completely destroyed. There was no protection. They they couldn't just shut the door and keep the bad people out because there were no doors. There were no gates. There was no protection. They were exposed. They were vulnerable. And again, these conquering nations, like I said, they they took the, the, the strong and the smart and the healthy. So the people that are being taken advantage of are the weak and the sick and the old. And and that's they're the most vulnerable people. So literally, not only are they exposed and vulnerable to attack, they are literally and physically the most vulnerable people who can't put up much of a fight. Go back to that that verse in Proverbs. About a man without self-control is like a city without walls. They're not safe. That's what a city without walls is like. You're vulnerable. It's not safe. Let's pick up in verse 4. Here's what Nehemiah says. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Let's press pause right here for just a second, right? Because we see what happens when the value and priority of being better together gets activated in someone's life. Right? It's not just talked about, but it's lived out. The, the questions that Nehemiah asks, it show us where, where Nehemiah's values and priorities are, Right? Nehemiah, first he asks about the people, then he asks about the place, which tells us this. Nehemiah cares more about the people than the place. Nehemiah cares more about the people who are being taken advantage of. He cares more about the people who are hurting, more about the people who are getting killed, more about the people who are insecure, living in fear, and overwhelming misery. He cares more about them than he does about the place. Now, don't get me wrong. Nehemiah cares about the place. We're going to see why in just a second, right? And we're going to see how much Nehemiah cares about the place. He cares about the place a lot. He just doesn't care about the place as much as he cares about the people living there. And this brings up kind of a critical point when it comes to our values and priorities. See, our values and priorities will show other people where they rank in our lives. And here's what I mean by that. When you and I hold things back for ourselves... We show everyone in our lives what we consider to be more valuable and more important than them. Our values and priorities show people where they rank. And when you say, yeah, I'd I'd love to help, I I just fill in that blank. What you're showing other people is what you consider to be more important and more valuable than them. And so when activated, being better together means this, that we will value and we will prioritize people over places. And that leads to something that that we see in Scripture. It's genuine compassion. We see this word happen. We see this word pop up a lot in Scripture, especially, you know, God, when he refers to himself, he refers to himself as a compassionate God. And this word compassion in the Old Testament literally means this, with feeling. Meaning God doesn't just act arbitrarily. God doesn't just, he's not apathetic. God doesn't just, he's not mundane, right? It's not like a, uh, all right, 
No, when God acts, when God does things, when, when God expresses himself, when God loves, when, when God disciplines, he does so with feeling. It's not apathy. He's not a robot. It's with feeling. It's compassionate. I read a book by Ben Stewart this summer. He describes compassion like this. He says, when I have compassion for you, I will suffer with you because I'm passionate about you. When I have compassion for you, I'm willing to suffer with you because I'm passionate about you. I have, I'm, I'm caring for you with feeling. Your hurt is my hurt. Your victory is my victory. We see Nehemiah express this compassion. He weeps and he mourns for days. This is what compassion looks like. And I want to give you an example of what it sounds like. We're going to read kind of a big chunk here, starting in verse 5. Nehemiah begins to pray. You want to know what compassion sounds like? It sounds like this. He said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and, and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that, now, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. I'm confessing the sins of the people in Israel, which we've sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Like again, Nehemiah, he puts himself in with them. That's what compassion does. Your hurt is my hurt. Nehemiah wasn't a part of everything that happened 200 years ago. Nehemiah was born in captivity, but here he says this. Like, it's not my fault. It's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. And being better together leads to compassion. And leading, and that compassion leads Nehemiah to take that responsibility of, listen, like even my house, even my descendants, even my ancestors, it may not be me personally, but, but, but we were a part of this. It says, we've acted very corruptly against you, and we've not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying this, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the utmost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to a place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Nehemiah remembers God's promises. Despite being born in captivity, despite being in a culture that, that's foreign to, to, to the culture that, that his family is a part of, right? He remembers God. He didn't allow that culture to influence him to the point where he forgot the truth about who God was. He says, they're your servants and your people whom you've redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servants and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success, he says, to himself, to your servant today, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. He's referring to King Artaxerxes. And then he says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. He adds a little detail in here. What does that tell us? Nehemiah had a pretty influential job. He had a job that, that was kind of cushy, if you're going to be honest. Like, if you're going to be a slave or a servant in a foreign kingdom, Nehemiah had a pretty good job. He was the cupbearer to the king. He was one of, one of the king's most trusted advisors. What the cupbearer would do is anytime anybody poured the, the king a drink, whether it was a drink of wine, the, the cupbearer would drink the drink first in case the drink was poisoned, and then the cupbearer would die and not the king. But to be the cupbearer meant you had to be able to be trusted. You had to be trustworthy. So, so Nehemiah was a guy of influence. Nehemiah was a guy who had a pretty good job. He was living in a palace. He was working directly with the king and the king's family. Some people say, some historians say, that the, 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 the cupbearers 
were, were part of that influential circle, that the kings oftentimes would listen to their cupbearer's advice and their wisdom when it came to how their kingdoms operated. Nehemiah had the ear of one of the most powerful men on the planet, but that was the man that also said that no one can rebuild Jerusalem. See, some people went to kind of start rebuilding it, and King Artaxerxes says, no, if they rebuild it, then they'll just rebel against us. You're not allowed to rebuild this, rebuild that city. You're not allowed to help, help those people. So Nehemiah is praying. He's saying, listen, God, um, I'm going go, to go talk to the king about helping the people in Jerusalem right after the fact that he just said we're not allowed to do that. So would you grant me success? Now, next week, we're going to come back to some of the things that happened kind of between this moment and what comes next. But today, I just want to keep the ball rolling, and we're going to do a quick flyby. Like, Nehemiah, he goes to this Persian king, Artaxerxes, who he works for, and asks if he can go back to Jerusalem and oversee the project of rebuilding the city, right? What we said was this, being better together leads to compassion, compassion leads to responsibility, and responsibility leads to action. So he was compassionate. He mourned for days. He prayed. He took responsibility, even though it wasn't his fault. And that level of responsibility led to action, right? And in this case, the action that Nehemiah is getting ready to take is he's going to leave a sweet job where he's he, in the palace as a trusted worker and advisor to the most powerful man on the planet, and he's going to go to a dangerous, unprotected city to rebuild it. Here's what Ben Stewart says. He said, when compassion and responsibility lead to action, we develop a willing spirit because we can begin to see ourselves in the equation. Being better together means this, that we develop a willing spirit that can always see room for ourselves and others in the equations of our lives. And that's what happens here with Nehemiah. Because that's part of his value, his life value and life priority is, listen, I can't, I can't just sit back and let the people that I love and the people that I care for suffer. I know that we're going to be better together. So, so the king lets Nehemiah go. And he even gives him like some political help with like the rulers in the area so he doesn't run into trouble. And so Nehemiah, he arrives on the scene. He does some stealthy recon work. We're going to talk about that next week to see what all needed to be done to the city. And then he starts the process of rebuilding the city. And the first thing they start to work on are the walls. Here's what it says in chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Then I said to them, the people who are in the city, you see the trouble that we're in. And they're like, uh-huh. How Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gate burned, with its gates burned. They're like, tell us something we don't know. And then he says this, come let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision, which is shame and oppression. And I told them about the hand of God that had been upon me for good and also the words that the king had spoken to me. Because again, these people are going, hey, the king that you worked for, bud, was the dude that shut this whole thing down. And he said, listen, I... I can I tell you about, I, I fasted and I prayed and I mourned for days. And then I asked God, would you just give me a little bit of success when it comes to influence with the king? And I went and had a conversation with the king. And the king, the same king that shut this whole thing down, said, go for it. In fact, how can I help you? So I told him about that. And here's what they said. Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. If you read through chapter 3 of Nehemiah, and I encourage you to read this when you go home this week. Like read through it this week. We'll put a reading plan up on our social media this week so you can kind of follow along. You'll see that in chapter 3, there are 40 sections, 40 different sections of the wall around Jerusalem. And Nehemiah divided those 40 sections 
among, divided those things up among 40 families and 40 different work crews. 40 sections of the wall divided up between 40 sections and, and 40 families and 40 work crews. And again, here's what happens. When we activate and we live out this, this value and priority of being better together, we'll put who, in, who ahead of what. So for Nehemiah, it's not only about what needs to be done, but it's also about who he can get involved. And who, who can help? Who can I do this with? Why? We're better together. Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6, he says this, So we built the wall, and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And I looked up this last phrase this week in, in, in a concordance, right? I wanted to see what that meant, right? Because there's times when you read scripture and you go, I feel like that means something. The people had a mind to work. Here's what it means. That phrase literally means this. The will and desire to accomplish the task was seated on their hearts and souls. The will and desire to accomplish the task was seated on their hearts and souls. Just so you know, like your heart and your soul in Scripture, those were the things that guided and directed your life. Right? They believed that. They believed like your heart and soul was whatever sat on your heart and soul, whatever sat on the throne of your heart and soul existed at the very center of who you were. And that was the thing that was going to guide and direct your life. We can think of those things as values and priorities. Right? That, that, that will and desire, the values and priorities to accomplish the task were seated on their hearts and souls. And later, if you fast forward to Nehemiah, kind of spoiler alert, we see it takes them 52 days to completely rebuild the wall that had been scattered and shattered for well over hundreds of years. A hundred plus years of ruin rebuilt and restored in 52 days. So you can see how the values and priorities in the with God life aren't just informational, they're transformational. The people in Jerusalem have been living in this unprotected city for years and it's not a stretch to think that, that, they, that they, they knew, right? They, they knew what it was like. They had just kind of accepted. It's not a stretch for us to think that, that they had just accepted, I guess this is what life is going to be like for us. I guess life, for the rest of our lives, we're going to live in a burnt down, ruined city. Life for us is going to be scattered and shattered. It's all we know. It's all we are. Until Nehemiah shows up with a different set of values and priorities. See, for those people living in that city, scattered and shattered had kind of begun to sit on the throne of their hearts. And then Nehemiah shows up with a different set of values and priorities sitting on the throne of his heart. He says this, we're better together. And it starts with compassion. And compassion leads to responsibility. Responsibility leads to action. That leads to a willing spirit. And that leads to not only seeing what needs to be done, but who can join in. And in 52 days, the city went from unprotected and vulnerable to safe and sound. So today, church, we're going to wrap up. We're going to land the plane, right? Today, we've been advertising this for a while. This is Say Yes Sunday. And here's the deal. If you're watching online and you thought, I'm going to avoid Say Yes Sunday so nobody guilts me into volunteering, it's going to be Say Yes Sunday for the rest of the month. So, surprise, right? Say Yes Sunday, right? It's going to be say yes August for the next few weeks. Saying yes, when we talk about saying yes, saying yes means this. We're going to activate the values in our lives. You know, when it comes to our Heavenly Father, right, obedience is the love language of a father. Because obedience, it, it doesn't just say, okay, I'll do whatever you tell me. Obedience says, I trust you enough to do what you say. And so when it comes to living an obedient life to Jesus, we live it one yes at a time. 
Every yes we give to Jesus is this. Jesus, yes, I trust you enough to do what you're asking me to do, even though it seems crazy, even though it may seem impossible. I trust you enough. And so when it comes to saying yes, it's you and I asking this. What can happen when the will and desire to accomplish the mission of Jesus and the ways of Jesus get seated on our hearts and souls? What happens when the values and priorities in your life, the things that guide and direct your life, that determine the way your life works, what happens when those things begin to look and sound more like Jesus? In Luke 12, Jesus says this. He turned to his disciples and said, this is why I tell you, don't worry about everyday life. Whether you've got enough food to eat or clothes to wear, for, for life's more than food and your body's more than clothing. He says, look at the ravens, look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store their food in barns because God feeds them. And you're far more valuable to God than birds. He says, can, can all your worries even add a single moment to your life? It's a rhetorical question. No. And if your worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, then what's the use of worrying over the bigger things? And then he says, why do you have so little faith? Why is your confidence in Jesus to take care of you so low that you believe that there's something or someone else that can take better care of you than him? He says, don't be concerned about what to eat and what to drink. Don't worry about such things, right? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. What do you see people stressed out about right now? What do you see people freaking out about right now? Stuff like this. He says, Listen, don't worry about it. Why? Because your father already knows what you need. So Jesus says this instead. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and he'll give you everything you need. Here's the truth, church. What we worry about reveals what you and I have not yet surrendered to God. The things that consume our thoughts, the things that make us anxious, those are the things that right now we're going, God, yeah, I know you're big enough to save my soul. God, I know you're big enough to defeat death. God, I know you're big enough to, to break the power of sin. I just don't think you can help me pay my bills. If God can do those things, God can take care of the small things in our lives. So the things that we worry about, they, they reveal the things that we haven't looked at God and go, listen, I know this isn't going to make sense, but I think you got it. I trust you. The reason that you and I have such a hard time saying yes to activating and living out a new set of values is because worry gets in the way. I don't know what I would do. I don't know if I can make that work. I don't know if I have time. I don't know if I have enough money. I don't know if I can do that. And here's, here's what I, I want to explain something quick as we land the plane, right? Jesus, he's not saying that you shouldn't work to put food on the table and take care of your family. He's not saying that. He's not saying quit your job. He's not saying that if you're hungry and homeless, you know what, just pray a little bit more and that'll fix that. That's not what Jesus is saying. Why? Because that's what the church is for. Right? The, the, the church, like in Nehemiah, the church, we're here to make sure that people have a roof over their head and they have food to eat. Right? Jesus set up his church to take care of people. Right? Jesus, what he's talking about here is what we pursue and build our lives on. What Jesus is talking about is what you and I allow to wrap itself around our identity. Jesus is talking about values and priorities. Why? Because he knows that what we value, what we deem to be worth it when it comes to how we live, and what we prioritize, the things that we determine are most important, those things will ultimately determine the direction, course, and destination of our lives. And Jesus is saying, listen, I don't want worry to impact your values and priorities so much that you miss out on the abundant life that I desire for you. 
So here's the challenge, church. Today, for the rest of this month, is say yes. Say yes. Let compassion into your life, right? Let let someone else's hurt be your hurt. Let someone else's victory be your victory. Let that lead you to responsibility, to see yourself in the equations of the lives of others. Let that lead to a willing spirit, not only seeing what needs to be done, but who can get involved. That's also the case for the church. This month is going to be a, a month for adventure to renew our commitment to compassion and responsibility and a willing spirit and action in the lives of others that are hurting. So Morgan said something today during the host spot. She talked about in January, we had this 100% challenge where we challenged our church over the course of this year for 100% of our church to be involved in discipleship, in volunteering, and in giving. For 100% of our church to plug into this place, to say yes, And what I realized is when we talked about that, that's a great goal, right? It's a great goal. Why not? Right? Why wouldn't you want 100% of your body to be healthy, right? If 2% of your body isn't healthy, you're sick. You want to be 100% healthy. So I want to put some handlebars on that. What I realized is back in January, we set these really great goals. And then typically in my, like, I'm like, yeah, that's great. That's awesome. Let's do that. I didn't give you any clear directions on how to do that, right? So here's what we're going to do put some handlebars on this. When it comes to generosity, meaning giving of your talents, your time, talent, and your treasure, when it comes to your treasure, let me just say this, okay? If every, if every adult, I did the math, if every adult in adventure that calls adventure home, if we saved $6 a day, which means $42 a week, and we set that aside to give it to the church, just with our crew right here, just six bucks a day, 42 bucks a week, we, our church, would already be at 95% of our budget we'd have to worry about it. That's what it happens. That's why we're better together. And you go, man, that sounds like a lot of money. That's that's $2,184 a year. Again, if we go back to what Jesus talks about, what the Bible talks about when it comes to being generous and giving, the Bible sets a baseline of 10%. It's called tithing. $2,184 a year given to God is 10% of a $21,840 salary. You go, well, what about my family? I guess it's my wife and my spouse. Okay, it's $4,368 a year. Again, that's 10% of a combined income of $43,680. And here's what we would say. We're not legalists at Adventure. We're not going to sit here and demand that every person give 10% starting tomorrow. What we say at Adventure is it's not equal giving, it's shared sacrifice. But can I just tell you this? When it comes to giving financially, it's not just to keep the lights on in this place. It's not to pay for fancy gear equipment. It's a faith exercise. And I'll tell you, Christina, my wife and I have not, in our, in our time in ministry, we've not always given 10%. We do now. And here's what we do. We pray this. I'm going to live on 90%, and I'm going to trust God to make up that 10%. It took us a minute to get there. Right? We had to figure some things out with our budget. It took us a while to get there. But we slowly, slowly but surely increased that and increased that. The, the church did the same. Four years ago, when I stepped into this place, we weren't given much to missions. It was about 4% of our budget we were given to missions. Now, we give almost 11% of our budget to missions. 11% of every dollar that comes in this place goes right out the door to support mission work and missionaries all over the country. As an organization, it took us a few years to get to the place where as, as, as an organization, we tithe. So we're not asking our church to do anything that we're not doing ourselves. Same thing when it comes to your time and your talent. 
Right now, if you sign up over here to volunteer two hours a month, two hours a month working in kids ministry or tech or safety, security, or, or, or greeter at the door or hospitality, two hours a month, most of our volunteer positions are about two hours a month. That's 3% of your month. You still have 97% of your month to do whatever you want to do with. If, if you decide to sign up to be in a group, if you want to be in a group, whether it's a study group or a life group, most of those groups are about two hours. Two hours, two hours a week in a group is 1.2% of your week. You still have a lot left over. So in your seats today, there are cards, right? And these cards, they're asking for a commitment. They're asking, I'm, I'm asking you today to take this card home, whether you're single or married, it doesn't make a difference. Take this card, whether you're a student or an adult, it doesn't make a difference. Take this card home and pray about it. Like Nehemiah fasted and prayed for days. Pray about it. And then on this card, we're not asking you to write your name, don't write your name. What we're asking you to do is make a commitment between this August and next August. Here's how much either I as an individual or me as, our, as our, or we as our family, here's how much we are setting aside to give to Adventure for the next year. Now, here's the thing. We're not in a financial crisis. We're not, there's no capital campaign. We're not looking to build anything. We're not looking to buy new air conditioners or repave a parking lot. We just want our church to get involved. Because when we do that, that gives us the ability, like Nehemiah, when you have this we're better together mindset, communities start to look different. One of the things that I talked about the elders, about when I interviewed for this position, I asked the question because there at the time, we're thinking, well, we may not be able to stay in this building. We may have to move out of J-Town. And I said, if Adventure moves out of J-Town, will anybody A, know or B, care? And they said, probably not. That's the first thing we have to work on. There are 65,000 people that live in the 40299 area code, zip code. Not all of them are plugged into to a church. Not all of them are doing okay. A lot of them are hurting and lonely and broken. A lot of them are hungry. A lot of them are scattered and shattered, and they need a place like this that can support them. That's what I'm asking you to say yes to. So take these cards home. Pray about them. Think about it. Talk it over with your family, even your kids. Involve your kids in this. Again, Nehemiah thought not just about what needed to be done, but who could he get involved. Talk to your kids about it. Again, what we, what the math is six bucks a day. If everybody in this church did six bucks a day, we'd be at 95% of our budget without even breaking a sweat, which is what I'm doing right now. It's so hot up here. <laughs> So that's my challenge for us today, church. Today we're gonna celebrate. We're gonna throw a party because Adventure likes to party. We're gonna have food. We're gonna hang out together. And I'm telling you, in that room, in that Say Yes Central, that cafe room, there are people in there that want to welcome you into giving part of your time, talent, treasure to this place. They wanna throw a party for you because it's awesome. We need you. Being a follower of Jesus is not a spectator sport. So I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to worship together today. If you want to be a part of this church, if you want to say yes to Jesus, I would love to meet you down front. If you need prayer, I would love to meet you down front. We're going to worship today, and we're going to give Jesus our yes. One yes at a time. It says, I trust you enough to do what you say, even though sometimes it doesn't make sense. Even though the world might look at me cross-eyed. Let's pray, and then we'll worship. Jesus, we love you.
And Jesus, today we want to give you our yes, just like Nehemiah did. That yes, that, that, the, the compassion that led to responsibility, that led to action, that led to a willing spirit, that led to the, the rebuilding and restoring of a city. Jesus, we want to see lives in this community restored. We want to see families restored. We want to see single parents taken care of. We want to see those who are lost and lonely find community. And we can only do that, Jesus, when we decide to do it ourselves. We stop trying to live our lives on our own and we say, listen, I'm, I'm gonna be better together. We're gonna to be better together. I'm gonna to jump in. I'm gonna grow as a disciple. I'm gonna pour into other people. I'm gonna to seek to give and be generous with my time, my talent, my treasure. So Jesus, as we wrap up today and as we pray, as we worship, as we sing, Father, I pray that your spirit is moving, that revival is already beginning to break out in the hearts of the people of this room. This is not about a financial campaign. This is not about a dollar amount. This is about revival breaking out within each one of us, within this church, within this community. And that starts with saying yes. We would give you our yes, Jesus. We love you. We pray all this in your name. Amen.